social determinants of health into professional teams, improving healthcare delivery to patients and families. These are the themes of our Urban Service Talks, a podcast featuring the stories of students from a variety of healthcare professions, learning together to serve patients in our underserved community. We are a group of curious Urban Service Track AX scholars. Sharing insight to educate and spark change wherever our stories are told. Welcome everyone to this episode of Urban Service Talks. Today we will be discussing the multifaceted issue of pain management. We'll look at our guest's professional experience to anchor our discussion while also branching out and talking about some of the disparities and issues that complicate this field. My name is Simon Ebbett, my pronouns are he, him, and I'm a physician assistant student at Quinnipiac University in North Haven, Connecticut, and I'm a member of UST AHEC Cohort 14. Hi again, everyone listening. This is Basan Salem, um, pronouns she and her. I am a dental student at the University of Connecticut, Farmington, Connecticut. And I'm a member of USD AHEC cohort 13. Simon and I are members of this podcast team and will be your hosts for today. This is such an incredible and dense topic and comes with many layers to unpack. But today's episode would hopefully serve as a starting point for a highly personalized issue for each patient. The thought that we would like you to ponder as we go through this episode is thinking about what pain means to you in your life. How does it look like for you and your patients? And how do you think your implicit biases shape how you approach pain and pain management? Um, So introducing our guest, Kimberly Chatter is a physician assistant practicing here in Connecticut, and I'll let tell us a little bit more about her background and how she comes into the stable on the issue. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am a proud cohort five graduate of Urban Service Track, and it's been a huge honor and a great learning experience to be the PA faculty for UST. And thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to talk about this topic, because in working with students over the last seven years, I see a lot of questions and hesitation and just people being in general nervous about prescribing opiates, which is something, probably the main thing that comes to mind when people think about pain management, although There's many other ways to treat pain and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, So I can really appreciate where students are coming from because even as a primary care PA, which I did my first two years, it definitely was the subject that made me the most nervous and I wasn't really sure what I was doing. And I was very fearful of prescribing opiates even when they were very much warranted. So I think any insight that we can offer students um, with this podcast is going to be really valuable and I think is is really in need. Um, I did pain management for five years um, full-time and recently transitioned to UConn uh, in the outpatient pavilion with general and plastic surgery. But of course, because it's a surgical specialty, you have to address pain management. And that's really across any and all specialties in medicine. Um, I would challenge someone to tell me what specialty you're not going to have to deal with patient's pain at some point. Um, So I think this is relevant no matter which field of healthcare you're in. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Um, 
We'll get into some more complex issues as we go along, um, but I wanted to start uh, just in general with a discussion of the field of pain management. And maybe, as you said, your, your experiences with, with students, um, maybe some advice for healthcare students or new professionals that are talking to their patients uh, that are in pain and, and treating that pain. So the first thing that always comes to mind that is important to do is to start by believing that your patient has very real pain. At least it's very real to them. Um, when I was new to the specialty and I feel very comfortable saying I didn't know what I was doing. Um, luckily I had some phenomenal supervising physicians guiding me. Um, I remember walking to my car a couple of weeks in and saying to myself, Kimberly, you have to believe that these patients have real pain because if you start going down this rabbit hole of assuming otherwise, you're not gonna do a good job. And so just because you believe a patient has real pain doesn't mean that you need to prescribe them opiates. In fact, that couldn't be further from the truth, but you're gonna do yourself a disservice, the patient a disservice and potentially harm someone or not give them adequate health care or great healthcare, which is what they deserve if you don't believe they have pain. Um, I have personally found that malingering is incredibly rare. Um, even in the pain management setting, I can count on one hand in five years, the times I was like, I think this patient might be malingering. Um, so along with believing they have genuine pain, the goal is then to figure out what other factors may be playing a role with each patient. And it may be socioeconomic issues, mental health, fear, cultural differences, the patient's motivation. Um, those things you, you'll have to figure out along the way, but know that that patient's pain is real to them. Um, and one last thing to take away, remember that pain does not bring out the best in anyone. Um, so be sure to dig deep for a lot of empathy and a lot of patience when you're dealing with patients who are in pain, because it, it doesn't make anyone their best self. And just kind of keep that in the back of your mind when, when you're trying to help someone in pain. Oh, that was very insightful. I, I really thank you for that. Because um, as a dental student, or even in medical school part of it, you were always thought that in order to treat our patients, we need to understand them. I realized that chronic pain itself is it's very isolating for a person. It's, it's, not, it's not something that can be seen. It's, and it's often not understood. Or as, you, as you mentioned, in, in some cases, it's not even believed. Um, which brings me to my next question. I feel like an enduring legacy of black and brown bodies are experimental patients in America's medical history, which lets us kind of hard to con contextualize that. So if, if you could contextualize this in terms of pain management for our listeners, um, what would you say? So one thing that we know for sure from evidence-based medicine and studies is that we know that racial disparities and inequities in pain care impact the delivery of analgesia. Um, black Americans, and I think this can be said for really any of our patients who are minorities, 
are systematically undertreated for pain relative to white Americans. And my UST education and everything that it's taught me could not have been more valuable and needed as I went into the pain management specialty because of the training and the firsthand knowledge from, you know, panelists, you know, during our retreats, it really reminded me every day that it's something that I needed to be conscious of, of with my own bias. Um, none of us as human beings are exempt from having bias, even with the best intentions. We can't help but take our upbringing with us, the cultural norms that we grew up with. Those things are going to impact us. We can't shake them, but we can arm ourselves with what we know through years and years of evidence-based medicine and know that we unfortunately have undertreated patients' pain um, when they are from minority populations. So I would often have to see a patient and I would try and sit at my desk and go through the case and make sure that I wasn't being biased myself. Um, and in fact, sometimes I had to make sure that I wasn't over-prescribing when it came to opiates because I didn't want to overcorrect for what I knew was a problem in medicine. Um, having a husband who is black and who is an immigrant and who is very questioning of the US, US healthcare system is a good reminder to me every day because he's taught me a lot about um, his mistrust for the healthcare system, which a lot of it was surprising to me, even though I was a UST grad, right? But having someone who you, who you love deeply tell you how questioning and unsure they are about our, our healthcare system reminds me that my patients of color probably feel the same way. Um, so building a relationship, a trusting relationship with your patients is key and to not be upset or insulted if they don't follow your every word with your medical advice on the first visit. Um, you can't take it personally, let them gradually get to know you and to build that trust and just be authentic. And I think they will perceive that you just want the best for them that's all you can do because you can't undo their mistrust of the medical system, but you can make sure you're doing everything you can to try and build the trust with you as an individual provider. Um, so I guess at the end of the day, to just have an honest reflection with yourself and say, am I, am I treating this patient the same way that I would a patient who looks like me? And then it's okay if you discover that there's some things that you need to work on, but just to be actively um, challenging yourself. Absolutely. Such a great point. And obviously a, a part of that self-reflection is helped by the team around you, I'm sure. Um, and expanding that, uh, level of accountability so that it's not only you every time. Um, and I, I know that the practice of pain management relies, uh, heavily on pharmacotherapies, more than some other specialties. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of excellent relationships with pharmacists that you work with regularly. But I was wondering if you could talk uh, maybe a little bit more broadly about interprofessional teams and the role that they play in the world of pain management. Yeah, so I feel at retreats, I've said so many times, oh, my favorite member of the healthcare team is the pharmacist. And I'm like, 
I don't mean that as a knock to all of our wonderful dental and nursing and MD, but I just, I rely so heavily on the pharmacists and they, um, they have been, the, the advice that they've given me has allowed me to sleep at night because I, I knew I did the right thing because I called the pharmacist for help. Um, communicating with the pharmacist is so essential, especially when prescribing not only opiates, but other things that treat pain, like some of the neuropathic drugs or the muscle relaxants, or, you know, there can be a lot of drug interactions. There can be um, a lot of side effects, not just for elderly patients, for any patient. And if you communicate with the pharmacist, then you know that you're talking to the right people who have the, the, the greatest depth of knowledge about how the drug is going to affect the patient and what other drugs the patient might be taking. Um, as far as prescribing opiates, keep in mind that the pharmacist absolutely has the right to refuse to fill a prescription and they are held accountable for overdoses and drug diversion as much as the person who's prescribing. And so I have had conversations with other prescribers where they kind of viewed the pharmacist in an adversarial stance because maybe the pharmacist called and questioned something where whenever the pharmacist calls me to have a conversation, I, I guess I just don't view it that way because they're only trying to help. They're, they have the patient's best interest in mind as I do, and I don't know everything. And so whenever I get that call from the pharmacist, it almost universally ends in me learning something, something I can do better, and probably gathering some information I didn't know about the patient or about the prescription. So reach out to the pharmacist and don't be offended if they reach out to you. Um, the pharmacist is often the eyes and ears in the community. They may have known the patient for much longer. They might even know some of the family dynamics or the community dynamics that I don't know about. And they certainly know what other medications the patient is taking. Um, times that I reach out to the pharmacist, especially when it comes to opiate management, is when the prescription is higher or stronger than the usual um, amount that would be prescribed. Examples of this might be if I'm taking over prescribing for a new patient who needs to be tapered down, you know, you can only do that so fast. And so that first prescription might come in looking like guns blazing when in fact, if you just communicate, hey, this is a new patient, often they've moved from out of state. Um, I know this looks really high. I have a taper plan. And the pharmacist has universally said, okay, gotcha. You know, they're going to work with me on it uh, because they're dispensing a large amount of narcotic and they get a say in it. Um, so another time will be if there's been a really bad injury, you know, a pelvic fracture, a vertebral fracture, amputations, these patients are going to be filling bigger prescriptions than other people. Um, and sometimes you need to relay that justification to the pharmacist. And certainly when treating cancer pain, um, I'll call the pharmacist and say, Hey, this is a mutual patient of ours. They were recently diagnosed with this. And so I'm going to be starting them on opiate therapy. Um, or if I'm just taking over prescribing from a, for a patient and the patient has always had it filled by Dr. So-and-so. And all of a sudden now my new, my name pops up and it's a, a new clinic. Oftentimes I'll just do a courtesy phone call and say, I'm taking over that prescribing. And it limits the problems that the patient is going to have 
when they get to the pharmacy, maybe they're on their last prescription and they're going to go into withdrawal. If they can't fill it, often that phone call to the pharmacist will go a long way and just saying, yep, I heard from the prescriber. I understand that they're taking over the prescribing. Here you go. And so it really leads to better patient care and continuity of care. Um, and the pharmacist lastly is just a huge asset when trying to figure out what's on formulary, what doses are available, um, what do they have in stock? A lot of the meds we prescribe, especially abuse deterrent, are brand name only, and they might be really expensive for the pharmacies and they don't always carry them or at every dose. And drugs often go on back order. Just in the five years, I can think of multiple times that nationally there was a production problem and a drug that a patient was on for years goes into back order and you don't know it unless you call maybe and have the conversation. There's no pop-up in the medical record saying, oh, there's a production problem. They can't get this drug for six months, but the pharmacist usually knows about it. So I can't encourage people enough to take the time and call that one. Absolutely. On the note of interprofessional education and mentioning that there's a lot that you can learn from pharmacists. Likewise, there's a lot that we can learn from you, <laughs> uh, which makes this so great. So this one's for the dentist and the healthcare students. It's a little bit of a guided advice question um, from my side. So as a future dentist, um, one of the main things we prescribe is pain management drugs. And for some patients, dental prescriptions might be their first encounter with opioids. If you were to give advice to a rising student like myself and other healthcare professionals entering this field, what, what advice would you provide? And what would you want us to kind of keep in mind as we enter the field? So the first thing is that no matter who's prescribing, whether it's an MD, a PA, or our wonderful nurse practitioners, uh, we are all beholden to the Connecticut state laws. So these are not guidelines. These are laws that you have to follow. So one of them is checking the Connecticut prescription monitoring program. And just as a quick note for our overseas listeners, the PMP is basically a prescription monitoring program that is implemented in the US, um, which basically is a big database for patients whenever they receive um, an opioid prescription. And you can correct me, Kimberly. Oh, you got it. It, It's (laughs) any controlled substance. So it's gonna be um, now both gabapentin and pregabalin, Lyrica are on it. Uh, And this is all based on a drug's potential for addiction. Um, And there's different categories, but certainly all opiates are on it. Medical marijuana is on there. Stimulants are on there. And one muscle relaxant, Soma. And testosterone um, is also on there if people supplement with testosterone. Um, So it's, it's a wealth of knowledge. You know who's been prescribing, where they've been picking it up, when the prescription was written versus when they filled it. And it, I agree that it should be law that you have to check it. I check it with almost every single prescription, whether I've prescribed for them for the first time or for years. I use words like overdose and death because I think you need to be really cut and dry about it. Um, you can't tiptoe around the fact that these in some circumstances can be lethal medications. And even when they're not lethal, I wouldn't wish the throes of addiction on anybody. And I don't think you can have enough conversations about the potential for abuse for these medications, even if people have been on them for a long time. Um, So Connecticut state law is something to keep in mind and also just the patient well-being overall. 
you often don't know your, your patient's, um, tendency to addiction. When you prescribe, it's a very gray zone. It's, it's hard to root out and you just want to make sure that you're not causing a problem or making an underlying problem worse. Um, you want to prescribe for the shortest amount of time possible and do a lot of education in encouraging patients to switch to over-the-counter medications. Um, sometimes they don't know that they can take Tylenol and an anti-inflammatory, which studies show can be incredibly effective for pain. Obviously those certain patients that can't take those medications, but you should always try them first. Um, just patient education is key and really asking yourself if prescribing a narcotic is necessary. Um, and maybe for some patients when they get their wisdom teeth out, it is necessary, but I got all four of mine dug out. They were impacted and they were like, take Advil. And I did. And it wasn't comfortable, but it worked out. And I'm, I remember finding myself surprised that other people got a big prescription of oxycodone when they had the wisdom teeth out, because that just wasn't my personal experience. And there may be many times when it is reasonable. I'm, I'm not a dentist, but just making sure that it's appropriate each time. So you've talked a couple different points here about your relationship with uh, supervising physicians and your relationship with pharmacists. I wondered if there were other aspects of the interprofessional team um, or other disciplines that you also found very helpful uh, in pain management or in your experience with pain management. Sure. Um, what comes to mind right away are my amazing nursing colleagues. Um, at my last pain management clinic, there were three phenomenal nurse practitioners. And as RNs, they all came from a different specialty. So one came from critical care. Another one came from the PACU, from the um, post-op uh, unit. And then another one came from orthopedics. And they brought so much knowledge and experience that with certain patient populations that I needed some help navigating. And then as nurse practitioners, they did exactly what I did in the clinic, except they came at it from the nursing perspective. And so I don't know how I would have gotten through those years um, at, a, at a very large, very fast paced pain management um, center without those wonderful ladies. Um, you know, as far as the, the dentists, I probably have the least, um, crossover as when it comes to pain management. I will say that as the years went on in the specialty, I definitely saw the prescriptions go down. You can see on the prescription monitoring website, um, it'll say DMD, you know, that, and you're like, okay, this patient, they did mention that they had oral surgery or that they were getting a tooth extraction. And I saw the prescriptions go down. So I would, Unfortunately, national statistics will tell us differently that actually dental prescribing has gone up. It's something I've had conversations with our wonderful UST professor, Victoria, uh, Dr. Victoria Massey about, um, but here in Connecticut, at least, I have definitely seen prescribing going down across the board interprofessionally. Um, probably the best resource for some of my Medicaid patients who have a lot of problems with transportation is their social worker. I have had many conversations with the patient's social worker if they were having a lot of problems getting to their appointments, which is not only important for their care, but if a patient is regularly missing appointments, 
you can't just continue to prescribe to a patient unless they're having regular appointments. It's part of the guidelines. And so before assuming that they're just trying to ghost you, UST taught me, hey, maybe it's a problem of transportation. And so often the social worker could help arranging um, the needs that came around transportation and communicating back with me if it was a continued problem. So social work, I don't, I don't know what we would do without these amazing people. And they're, they're such a resource, especially because a lot of my pain management patients have problems surrounding mental health and socioeconomic issues, and we couldn't do it without them. Another big part that we don't have at UST, though, is the physical therapists uh, and the occupational therapists. I can't think of a specialty that works closer with, with PT than, than pain management. We probably refer to them more than anyone, and they are a huge resource and a huge wealth of knowledge. So interprofessionalism doesn't just end at uh, the specialties that we focus on here in UST, um, but certainly UST teaches you the importance of reaching out to the entire healthcare team. Um, and then you don't feel so alone and afraid when you don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, such an important point about all the factors that go into just having that patient be able to, to make it in for their appointment. I think that's an important uh, place to kind of bring in the, the conversation on substance misuse and abuse. And I was wondering, I, I know certainly for, for myself, something that, that uh, makes me anxious is that line between treatment and, you know, the, um, the slippery slope that we might talk about of going towards substance misuse and abuse. Could you elaborate more on your experience with treating pain in the context of patients with substance use disorder? Yes, it's, it's something that has mainly gray area and that no provider I've ever met had formal training in. It's very much learning it on the battlefield. Um, and everyone is a little unsure and that's okay. Um, so reaching out to your colleagues interprofessionally. Um, a lot of times patients will have been on pain meds. There might clearly to you be a pain, uh, a substance abuse problem going on, but the patient might not think so at all. You know, they might say, nope, I take these. I have chronic pain. These are prescribed to me. So it's not always black and white that there even is a substance abuse problem there. So kind of keep that in mind. Um, Sometimes pain doesn't mean treating with opiate therapy. Sometimes there's a lot of other things you can do. And a lot of times the patient doesn't want opiates because they do fear relapse. Patients will often be very transparent, obviously not always, but I've had a lot of patients say, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want opiates. I, I don't, I have, you know, I've been uh, sober for however amount of time and, and I don't want to relapse. And I always thank them for their authenticity and their truthfulness. And I just feel such more of a connection to that patient because they're being so honest with me. Um, and again, that's not always the case, but you'll, you'll hear patients say that, um, you know, when addiction is an issue, don't tiptoe around it, address it head on with empathy and respect, but you need to have an honest judgment-free conversation. 
um, with these patients. They deserve that. Um, if opiates are necessary for pain, consider abuse deterrent drugs. This is easier said than done because of insurance issues, but there are a lot of drugs that are abuse deterrent now. And often it just takes doing that prior authorization or working with the insurance to get them approved, but it's worth it knowing that you're able to give pain control to these patients who have a tendency to, towards addiction. Um, if the patient is on methadone or buprenorphine for addiction, please pick up the phone and communicate with either the methadone clinic or the buprenorphine prescriber so that you have a smooth transition back into um, medication for the patient to stem um, cravings and things like that. That's going to be really important. And without that communication, the prescriber or the methadone clinic might jump to the wrong assumption that the patient had real pain and it needed to be treated. So probably the toughest case I ever had was um, a patient with a history um, of alcohol abuse and she was very transparent about it, but she had these open chronic leg wounds that were incredibly, incredibly painful. And she had started drinking again to help control the pain. And she told me that upfront and so I actually went to my supervising physician for help because I don't think I had ever actively prescribed something for someone who was actively drinking, but they were doing it for pain control. And so we ended up going with a buprenorphine product that has a less risk of addiction and abuse um, to help her with the pain from these open leg sores. And I met with her over telemedicine because it was during the pandemic once a week. We checked in once a week and I did one week prescriptions and she did fantastic. And she ended up getting in with wound care. Things got better. We had her on opiates for a couple months and then we transitioned off and she told me that she wasn't drinking. Um, you know, we do urine drug screens and she, she wasn't popping up positive for alcohol but it was a case where pain management was necessary and she deserved it. I just followed her more closely than I would have some of my other patients. And yes, I was uncomfortable with it, but I still think that we did the right thing for her. That is such a wealth of information. Thank you so much for, for the advice thus far. It's been, it's been really great, but we'd like to end our conversation with some next steps for our listeners. Um, so do you have any resources that you'd want to recommend or take home points for them to consider? So just again, to come back to believing your patients have pain and verbally acknowledging that they have pain. I have often had patients break down crying because no one believes them that they're in pain. And they'll say, my family doesn't believe me. Other, you know, healthcare professionals haven't believed me. Um, and again, I just, most patients are not opiate seeking. I have found, um, a lot of patients tell me that it's easier to get opiates on the street than it is from a provider, um, whether it's cheaper or it's just too much of a pain to go and get it from, you know, a clinic. Um, most of these patients just want help and they want pain relief. And again, it's your job to figure out what other factors might be playing a role, um, as far as tools, you know, luckily there are state laws and guidelines. We cling to those in pain management for guidance because pain is a very subjective complaint and abuse and addiction can be such a problem. Arm yourself with the resources of how to get patients help when 
you realize that there is an abuse of the meds going on often. And my colleagues in pain management, we have acknowledged that sometimes we're afraid to ask those questions because if the patient says, yes, this is a problem, there is a desert of resources of where to send them. So having those resources ready, you'll be able to help them when you realize that it's a problem. Um, and for anyone who's interested, I can, I'm happy to share my resource list with them. Uh, a book that I read early on in pain management was uh, called Drug Dealer MD by Anna Lempke. She is a doctor, I think out in California, who runs the dual diagnosis um, for um, drug abuse and mental health, I think at Stanford. And it's a quick read. It's a great book. Um, she talks about who is at risk for addiction and a nature versus nurture versus neighborhood. And that it's a complicated picture when we look at who um, is at risk for addiction. And then she talks about the three C's of addiction, control, compulsion, and consequences. Um, something different drives everybody to addiction. Not everybody who maybe had a problem with alcohol is going to have a problem with pain medication. It's not that black and white. There are certainly screening tools out there. Um, and sometimes you read a patient wrong and you totally believed everything they were telling you. And then things go off the rails and you realize maybe a family member calls and said, Hey, by the way, my dad is snorting the oxycodone that you give him and he's downing it with alcohol at night. I've had that happen to me and I didn't see it coming. Um, so all you can do is do your best and be vigilant. And when things go wrong, take a look back at, at what you could have done better, but also, um, don't beat yourself up about it. It's going to happen. Go to trusted colleagues for advice. Um, and just always have the patient's best interest in mind and believe them. Thank you so much. That's a lovely sentiment to, to end our discussion on. And thank you so much for coming in and, and speaking with us, uh, Kimberly. It's been so helpful um, to just further the conversation and, and get some things out in the open um, to, to help us digest those, those issues. Um, with such a complex uh, combination of of factors going on with uh, with this issue. Thank you for your for your insight and your encouragement. Also, thank you to Urban Service Talks team for all their work in this episode. Thank you so much for having me and giving me this opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yep. And as always, we like to end our episodes with a couple of questions and points to meditate on for our listeners. So first, what is pain? look like and feel like to you? How might discussing pain more frequently with your patients and clients help improve the care that you give in this area? And then second, when you think of patients in pain, what image comes to mind? How might your biases or preconceptions be affecting the care that you give? We'd love to connect with all of you, so let us know what you think on our social media pages or by email. And I hope you have a great rest of your day, both Simon, Kimberly, all the team and all the listeners and be safe. This podcast is sponsored by Connecticut AHEC and UConn Health. Let's keep this talk going. Join us on Twitter at Talks Service.
Instagram at Urban Service Talks or by email at ust.pod at gmail.com. <laughs>